Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Leila Lalame. <laughs> Thank you, Noel. <laughs> thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Uh, and thank you all for coming. I know that um, it's very busy on a weeknight in LA, and uh, so I really appreciate each and every one of you who have come here today. Um, I want to talk to you about my new book, The Moore's Account. Um, the way that this book was born um, it's really kind of unusual. About five years ago, I was assigned uh, a book uh, by The Nation magazine to review. It had something to do with immigration, nothing at all to do with what this book is about. And in the process of reading up secondary sources for that book, I came across um, the work of Anwar Majid, who's a Moroccan scholar, and his book was called We Are All Moors. And it's really about how the term Moor um, has come to represent everything that is foreign, everything that is different. And so it was making parallels between what was happen parallels between what was happening in 16th century Spain and what is happening today in the way that we talk about immigrants. So, you know, I'm reading the book, and it's very interesting, and about halfway through, I come across this mention of uh, Estebanico, who is said to be a Moroccan slave who is the first black explorer of America. And I, it just stopped me in my track. What do you mean, first black explorer of America? I haven't heard of this guy, you know. I, you know, went to school in Morocco all the way through college, and I mean, I maybe wasn't the sharpest student of history, but I would have remembered if they had mentioned this guy, and nobody had mentioned him before, so I was kind of intrigued. And the book talked about the fact that he was a part of the Narvaez expedition, which landed in Florida in 1528. And the goal was to claim that part of the world for the Spanish crown. Um, but the reason that we even remember the Narvaez expedition is because it was essentially um, a disaster. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And within a year, there were only four survivors, three Spanish noblemen, among whom uh, the famous Cabeza de Vaca, and Estebanico, the Moroccan slave. And I thought, you know, Cabeza de Vaca, that kind of rings a bell. I mean, I remember having read that name. I know that Tom Cruise was interested in making a movie where he would star as Cabeza de Vaca. You know, it's just very strange synapses were firing in my brain. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to read, read what this guy wrote, right? Like, he's, he's, you know, the treasurer of the expedition, Cabeza de Vaca, had written a narrative of that expedition. And it's called Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition. Uh, it's also published under the title Naufragios by the, um, so it's, but anyway, so, so I went out and I got the book, uh, in the, it's in Penguin Classics series. There's a seat, you can sit in front, I don't bite. Anyway, um, and um, so I went out and I got the book and 
I became even more fascinated by this expedition because the more I read about it, the more it just seemed completely insane. So expeditions in the 16th century was sort of like startup companies today. The way that it works is everybody brings in a bit of money, all these venture <laughs> capitalists, and they get together and they put together an expedition to go and claim the territory and then whatever they find, they all split. The king gets the royal fifth and everybody goes home happy, right, except the natives. But um, but so then, um, at that time, they put together this expedition, and um, everything in the book that that everything that Cabeza de Vaca wrote struck me by its silence. So the very first silence that you notice is that none of the indigenous people, except for one character who ended up misleading the the, the Spaniards, a very clever uh, chieftain, um, is unnamed. No mention of women, and the expedition, the survivors had lived among the Indians for eight years, and I thought, okay, well, that doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> and um, the other thing, too, that you notice when you read the book is periodically Cabeza de Vaca will say something like, my boat was the first one to reach shore, and I spoke, you know, he's always the one who puts himself at the center of, of the story, which kind of makes sense. He wrote it, he wants to be the, <laughs> the hero of it. Um, but it just really was surprising to me as I read it, all the things, all the silences around the book. And there's a reason for that. The book, Cabeza de Vaca, the reason that he wrote the book was because long after the expedition, long after they were found and returned to civilization, he wanted to become a governor of uh, a province in New Spain. And so he had to sort of... Um, get a license from the king and so he had to ingratiate himself to the king and so all of this book I mean was part of that attempt so the, the, he obviously had an agenda as any writer writing any story is going to have an agenda and so um, I just I thought huh it'd be interesting to know what this slave's perspective of this expedition is, particularly because he served as the translator for the other three uh, survivors, the three Spaniards. He served as their scout and as their translator. Uh, part of the reason for that was because the Spaniards didn't want to talk directly to the Indians. They considered it beneath uh, them to talk directly, so they used him as a, a go-between. And to me, the position of translator is actually a very powerful position, not a powerless position, it's a very powerful position. And yet, you know, you don't hear about his perspective on, on the events. All we know about him is a line at the very end of the book, which is that the fourth survivor, um, se llama Estebanico, es negro al árabe, natural de azamor, meaning he is... Um, the fourth survivor is named Estebanico, and he is an Arabic-speaking uh, Negro, and um, he was born in Azamor, which is a town on the um, west coast uh, of Morocco. So I thought, okay, I, this is just a fascinating story. I, I've got the idea. This is so great. This is fantastic. It's going to be a great book. And then 
then you know the wheels started turning in my head and I was like there's no way I can do this there's no way think about it all the research how do I know what was happening in us more in the 16th century how do I know what's happening in Spain in the 16th century I don't know what's happening with the indigenous tribes in the 16th century and it's a huge swath of territory that they that they walked across so all these challenges were were popping up in my head and essentially discouraging me from from writing the book um and and I but but it just seemed like such a great story. It wouldn't let go of me and I thought fuck it, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I decided to take a leap and as Bray, Ray Bradbury put it, build my wings on the way down. Um I want to give you a sense of what uh the book um is like the first challenge was was coming up with a voice for this guy right um, I wanted his voice to feel authentic um, and so therefore I wanted him to sound like he was from the 16th century in Azamore but at the same time I didn't want him to feel completely antiquated so there were a lot of choices at the level of language to, to kind of get that right um, the right tone so I'm going to read you just the opening paragraph uh, so the book is structured, each chapter is named uh, after a story. So the first chapter is the story of La Florida. This is when they get there. It was the year 934 of the Hegira, the 30th year of my life, the fifth year of my bondage, and I was at the edge of the known world. I was marching behind Senor Dorantes in a lush territory. He and Castilians like him called La Florida. I cannot be certain what my people call it. When I left Azamor, news of this land did not often attract the notice of our town criers. They spoke instead of the famine, the recent earthquake, or the rebellions in the south of Barbary. But I imagine that, in keeping with our naming conventions, my people would simply call it the land of the Indians. The Indians, too, must have had a name for it, although neither Senor Dorantes nor anyone in the expedition knew what it was. Senor Dorantes had told me that La Florida was a large island, larger than Castile itself, and that it ran from the shore on which we had landed all the way to the peaceful sea. From one ocean to the other was how he described it. All this land, he said, would now be governed by Panfilo de Narvaez, the commander of the Armada. I thought it unlikely, or at least peculiar, that the Spanish king would allow one of his subjects to rule a territory larger than his own. But of course, I kept my opinion to myself. So this is just the beginning, just to give you an idea of what he sounds like uh, right when they land. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, one of the things that one of the reasons that the expedition was sent, one of the reasons that the expedition was sent to Florida was to claim it for the Spanish crown. So they arrive in the vicinity, as I said, of what is now Tampa Bay in Florida, and somebody is sent ashore uh, because they've seen signs of a village. And that person comes across a little nugget of gold. In the book, it is described as it could fit in a child's rattle. And that's what leads to disembarking and wanting to claim the land and go look for this gold, the source of this gold. Um, so uh, this is what happens right after they have found the gold. The next day, in other words. My fears were confirmed early the next morning 
when we heard a commotion behind the village storehouse. Senor Dorantes had wanted me to give him a haircut, and I had just begun to trim the edges of his thick, weed-colored hair. His beard had grown too, but he had not asked me to shave it. Perhaps he felt that he did not need to worry about matters of grooming now that he had reached the edge of the empire. Or he grew his beard because he could, and the Indians, it was rumored, could not. I confess, I did not ask him why. I was relieved to have fewer chores. But when we heard the cries of soldiers, Senor Durante shot to his feet with the white linen cloth still tied around his neck and ran across the square to see what had happened. I followed him with the civilian scissors still in my hand. The soldiers, it turned out, had found some Indians hiding in the bushes and had captured four of them. Um, so when they land, the village was deserted. So now they have found four. All four were men. All four were naked. I had seen Indians before on the islands of Cuba and La Española, where the Armada had stopped to purchase more supplies, but never at such close range. I was unused to seeing men walk about in their natural state, unashamed of their bodies, so my first impulse was to stare. They were tall and broad-shouldered, with skin the color of earth when it has rained. Their hair was glossy and long, and on their right arms and left legs, they had tattoos in shapes I did not recognize. One of them had a lazy eye, just like my uncle Omar, and he blinked in order to focus his gaze on his captors. Another was surveying the village, taking stock of all that had changed since our arrival. A large cross had been set up by the, temp by the temple. The governor's standard hung from a pole in the square, and along the perimeter, Horses were tethered to newly built posts. The stories I had heard about the Indians had me expecting something incredible, fire-breathing jinns, perhaps, but these men looked harmless to me, especially next to the Castilian soldiers. Still, they were tied up and brought to Senor Narvaez. From his pocket, the governor retrieved the pebble of gold I had found. Holding it up in his palm, he asked them about it. Where did you find this gold? The captives looked at him levelly, and two of them said something in their mother tongue. I could not detect a pattern yet to the stream of sounds that emerged from their lips. Where did one word end and another one begin? My upbringing in a trading town like Azamor had instilled in me a love of language, and if I may be forgiven for this moment of immodesty, a certain ease with it. So I was curious about the Indian's tongue, even though it had none of the clues that had been helpful to me when I learned new idioms. Familiar sounds, a few words in common, a similar intonation. But to my surprise, the governor nodded slowly, as if he understood the Indians perfectly and even agreed with them. Still, he repeated his question, where did you find this gold? Behind him, the soldiers watched and waited. Up in the trees, birds were singing, determined in their trills despite the oppressive heat. The soothing sound of waves came from the beach nearby, and I could smell smoke in the air. Someone had already started a fire for the almuerzo. Again, the, the Indians answered the governor in the same way as before. At least, I assumed they were answering. It was just as likely that they were asking the governor a question of their own, or challenging him to a fight, or threatening him with death if he did not release them. The governor listened politely to their answers, and then he turned to his page. Lock them up in the storehouse, he said, and bring me a whip. 
Senor Dorantes returned to his seat, and again I had to follow. Neither one of us spoke. I finished cutting his hair, handing him a small mirror, and holding another one behind him. I saw both of our reflections on these opposing mirrors. My master looked satisfied with the haircut, nodding, appreciati nodding appreciatively as he turned his face this way and that. His beard nearly hid the scar on his right cheek, a scar I once heard him proudly tell one of his dinner guests he had sustained years earlier in Castile when he had, pulled, when he, when he had helped put down a rebellion against the king. As for me, my bondage had taught me to keep an impassive face, but in the mirror, I noticed that my eyes betrayed my anxiety. I told myself that I had merely been curious about the kind of fishnets the Indians used. I had not been looking for gold, yet the pebble I had found had caused these four men, men who had done me no harm, to be whipped. I had to pretend, like my master, not to hear the cries that had begun to emerge from the storehouse. Within moments, they had turned into howls, so long and so filled with pain that I felt they were echoing in the depths of my own soul. And then, interrupted by the periodic and terrifying crack of the whip, there was only silence. Later, when I was helping Senor Dorantes into his boots, I overheard his younger brother, Diego, a quiet lad of 16 or 17 years of age, ask him about the governor's encounter with the Indians. Diego was so different from Senor Dorantes, it was a wonder to me that they were blood brothers. Where one was shy and guileless, the other was bold and crafty. Where one was selective in his friendships, the other was quick to love and quick to hate. And yet Diego patterned himself after his older brother in whatever way he could. He wore his doublet unbuttoned at the top and his helmet tilted back like a weary soldier. He had tried to grow his beard, too, but so far, only scattered patches of hair had sprouted on his cheeks. Hermano, Diego said, when, where di when did Don Panfilo learn their language? Has he been to La Florida before? Senor Dorantes gave Diego an amused look, but he must have thought the question harmless, for he answered it presently. No, this is his first time here, just like us. But he has a lot of experience with the savages. He can make himself understood quite well by them, and he rarely fails to obtain the facts he seeks. This made no sense to me, yet I remained silent, for I knew that my master would not take kindly to being challenged about the governor's fluency in the Indian tongue. The elders teach us, a living dog is better than a dead lion. But why must he whip them, Diego insisted. Because the Indians are known liars, Senor Dorantes replied. Take these four. They are likely spies, sent here to watch us and report on our movements. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, my master's tone had shifted from amusement to mild irritation. He stood up and ran a finger along the top edge of his boots, making sure his breeches were properly tucked in. To get the truth, he said, it is necessary to flog them. So, um, not the <laughs> not the lightest material there is to uh, to deal with, uh, but. Uh, part of the reason that I, I uh, wrote it in this scene is that as a counterpoint to the way in which it is told in uh, the book that inspired this one, in Cabeza de Vaca's book, right, where none of this stuff is is actually um, spoken about, even though you can guess at it from the text. Um, 
the other reason uh, the other reason that uh, attracted me to the story is not simply that it's an incredible true story and not simply that uh, it involves this guy Estebanico but also because it is an incredible story of transformation these uh, conquistadors arrive they have horses they have armor they have weapons they are uh, they have the technology of the day right they have all of those advantages uh, but within a year, they are completely at the mercy of indigenous tribes, completely dependent on them for their survival, for their food, for their protection, for everything. And uh, as, we, as the book progresses, we see these views that they have brought with them about the indigenous tribes are being transformed in the course of these books. So uh, it was, I mean, it's interesting because for the writer, when you have people that are speaking the way that people in the 16th century are speaking, you have to work kind of like harder to use to use the text in ways that you that can subvert what the words uh, the words that are coming out of the character's mouth. Do you see what I'm saying? So basically, you're manipulating scenes in such a way as to give lie to the words that they're saying, basically, and. Um, so that was another uh, one of the many challenges of writing this book, is taking the story as it's happened, or the facts that we know about the story, and finding ways at every step of um, sort of subverting the official record and playing with it, or changing details of it that, that, that seem to, to me to be more authentic than what, than, than what we know. Um, the other thing, too, as I mentioned, is that we know very little about Estebanico, but uh, this was the, the most fun part of the book, was getting to create the characters. We actually know a little bit more about Cabeza de Vaca, because he wrote the book. We know how he sounds. We know what his views are like. We don't know quite so much about uh, the, the uh, Estebanico's master, uh, a gentleman by the name of Andres Sorantes, um, and the other survivor was named um, Alonso del Castillo. We know a little bit where they're from, uh, and we know where they have, where the source of their money, like where their family fortunes are from. Um, and we know where they ended up after the story, after, after the, the, their rescue. Um, but even so, um, there's still a lot of room to know, um, to, to know them as characters, as, as people, how they reacted, how they were like with each other and with the natives. Um, and in particular, in the case of Estebanico, I had to create everything from from scratch. So I had to give him a family and ancestry and desires and wants and loves and everything. And so I want to read you just a little bit about the hero's unusual birth um, before I, I continue talking. How am I doing on time? Okay, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is the story of my birth. My mother once told me that I had been destined for a life of travel. The signs, she said by way of proof, had been there on the day of my birth. At that time, my father was a newly credentialed notary with ambition to match his youth, but he found it nearly impossible to earn a de decent wages in Fez. You see, the city was overrun with refugees from Andalusia, Muslims and Jews who had fled the forced conversions. Among these exiles were many famous jurists and experienced notaries. So when news reached my father that the town of Melilla, less than three days away by horse, had fallen to the crown of Castile, his first thought 
was that there would be even more refugees in the city and even less work. He decided that he and my mother should move south to Azamor, where he was born, where his brother still lived, and where he could, without shame, call upon them if he needed help. But the story of my birth began long before I tumbled forth into this world. It began when one empire was falling and another was rising. It began, like a thousand other stories, in Fez. My mother, Hania, was the youngest of nine children, the only girl, and my grandfather's favorite. When she turned 15, he had agreed to let her marry a wealthy rug merchant, someone he thought would take good care of her, but the merchant died just three months later in a fight with two of the sultans in Khaznia. Her second husband, an old and wise tailor, died of a high fever less than a year after their marriage. Of course, accidents and disease were a part of life, but it seemed that Hania had received an unusual share of them at an early age. People began to talk about the unlucky bride, twice widowed by the time she was 17. As the gossip was told and retold around town, it acquired the embellishments any good story deserves. My mother was a young maiden of unparalleled beauty, unrivaled virtue, and uncommon talent. She could play the lute and recite poetry, but oh, how unlucky she was in matters of matrimony. When the story came back to my grandfather, he was the first to believe it, in spite of the fact that my mother was rather plain and had no special musical talents. He had been given to despair, but now he decided that there was a simple way to break her curse. Instead of an old and wealthy husband, she needed a young and healthy one. My grandfather was a chandler by profession, a popular man whose clients included the, included the hospice of El Maristan, the Madrasat al Attarin, and the Hammam al Safarin. He was delivering a batch of candles to the college of the Qarawiyin one morning when he saw my father, Muhammad, reclining against a pillar in the main hall. My father was resting his aching back, but in the half-light of the early morning, he looked like a pensive, earnest student. As my grandfather lowered the bronze chandelier and began to replace the candles, he struck up a conversation with the young scholar. He learned that my father studied Sharia, that he planned on becoming a notary, and most interesting of all, that he was a boarder. For my grandfather, these details had an advantageous interpretation. Muhammad was ambitious, he would soon have an income, and since he had no relatives in Fez, he would surely agree to live with his wife's family. My grandfather concluded that Muhammad was the perfect match for Hania. It was true that my father was tall and well-built, but his appearance belied his true nature. As a child in Azamur, he had barely survived the measles, and he had subsequently caught every other disease that swept through town. If he swam in the Umarbiya River, he caught a cold even in the summer. If he raced with his friends through the alleyways of the Medina, he was the one to fall and sprain his knee. If he walked around barefoot, his big toe was sure to find a stray nail. He came from a family of carpenters, but early on his father had decided that there was no point in training him, like his other children, into the craft. That was how Muhammad had ended up at the town school and later at the Qarawiyin. Studying seemed to be the only activity that caused him neither sickness nor injury. When my father met Hania's father, each saw in the other something he desired. 
Muhammad had already heard about Hania's legendary beauty and her many talents, so he was keen to satisfy his curiosity. My grandfather, meanwhile, thought that this handsome young man would finally break his unlucky daughter's curse. There followed an invitation to tea, a quick glimpse behind the curtain, and in short order, my parents were married. After my father recovered from the shock of discovering that my mother was not Shahrazad, he tried to make the most of it. He finished his studies, and between bouts of cold, fever, or fatigue, he looked for work. That was when he noticed that Granadans were everywhere. Not only did they have credentials and experience, but they also had an exotic appeal my father could never match. With the fall of Melilia to the crown of Castile, he decided to move back to Azamor with my mother, now pregnant with me. This caused great consternation among his in-laws, who incidentally were also recovering from the shock of discovering that my father was not Antara on his steed. When they set out on the long road to Azamor, my father on foot, my mother on the black pannier-laden donkey that had been given to her as a wedding gift, dark clouds followed them all the way to the coasts, so that it seemed to them that they were being chased from one end of the country to the other. It was an early fall that year. The weather was cooler than usual, and frequent showers impeded their progress. They did not reach the mouth of the Umarbea River until late afternoon, two days later. Across the water, the 11 minarets of Azamor must have seemed to them like so many welcoming hosts. They must have been eager to get to my uncle's house, where they could have a bowl of hot soup while they warmed themselves up by the side of the brazier. They sat under a cluster of fig trees to wait for the barge. My mother began to feel uncomfortable, but she did not want to alarm my father because by her calculations, she was not due for another two months. Ordinarily, the crossing of the river does not take much time at all. But on that particular day, after my father and the other travelers haggled about the price of their passage and loaded their belongings, it was almost dusk. Just as the barge was ready to depart, two Portuguese horsemen arrived, trailing a prisoner. The city of Azamor had been under vassalage to Manuel the Fortunate for a few years already, and none of the travelers, burdened by Portuguese taxes, could abide the sight of these two men of arms. Still less could they bear to see that the prisoner was one of their own, a young woman whose veils had been removed and whose hands were bound by chains. Red blistered strokes ran down her face and arms. The two soldiers were tall and their helmets and armors looked heavy, perhaps too heavy for the current trip. The barge itself was not very large. The wooden platform built between two felucas and towed from either side of the river could fit only a dozen passengers. And it soon became clear that one animal had to be let out if the soldiers and their horses were to get on board. The head ferryman asked the soldiers to wait until he returned, but they refused. My father intervened. He was one of only two travelers with a donkey, and if anyone were to disembark, it might have to be him. Addressing the soldiers haltingly in their native language, he explained that he and my mother had been on the road since before dawn, that their luggage had already been loaded, and that it would not take long for the ferry to return. The soldiers replied that they were expected at their garrison, and in any case, they should have priority over civilians, vassals at that. The sun had begun to set now, and the call for the evening prayer resonated from the minarets across the river. A cold wind blew. My father pulled the hood of his jalaba over his head. He was a soft-spoken man who was known for his ability to negotiate. After all, that was what his occupation often demanded. But on that day, he suddenly and inexplicably opted for confrontation. 
Why should you have right of way? He demanded. He put his left hand on one of the horse's bridle as he spoke. His voice croaked, so unused was he to speaking to soldiers. And what has this poor girl done? Why do you have her in chains? How dare you question me, one of the soldiers replied. He drew his sword, and despite, and despite cries of wait, wait, from his companion, he struck my father on the shoulder. All at once, my father fell to the ground, my mother ran off the barge screaming, and the soldier sheathed his sword. My mother dropped to her knees next to my father. Sidi Muhammad, she called. Sidi Muhammad, are you hurt? One of my father's, on my father's great jalaba, the neat hole made by the sword was blooming red. The travelers and ferrymen gathered around, giving advice, clucking their tongues, or elbowing each other for a better look. He needs to be taken across the river right away. Lift him up against that fig tree. Take off his turban, it looks too tight. Brother, give him some water to drink. What good will water do? He's bleeding, not fasting. At least I'm offering advice, not just standing there like some people. My mother pressed her palms on the wound and called for a candle from her basket so she could take a better look. My grandfather, may God have mercy on his soul, had sent her on the road with plenty of his stock. The Portuguese soldier calmly tethered his horse to a post and went to pull the donkey off the barge, but the poor animal twitched its long ears, turned its head sideways, and refused to move. Come help me, the soldier said to his companion. The two men, each one with a strap in his hand, dragged the donkey forward, but the travelers held it back from its saddle. First you kill a man, they said, and now you want to steal his donkey? Meanwhile, the head ferryman searched the, donkey, the donkey's panniers for the, for the bundle of candles my mother needed. The commotion must have flustered the animal because it began to bray. Out of solidarity, the other donkey on the barge took up the call. Donkeys, as anyone who has owned one will tell you, are loud. They can be heard for leagues around. If you happen to be near a particularly vocal one, it can be very unpleasant, which is exactly what everyone on the eastern bank of the Umrbiya experienced on that fall evening of the year 903 of the Hegira. The deafening noise made everyone cover their ears, so no one heard my mother say that she was feeling the early contractions of labor. One of the travelers, perhaps remembering the saying of our messenger, as recorded by Abu Huraira, when you hear a cock crow, ask for God's blessing, for their sound indicates they have seen an angel. And when you hear a donkey bray, seek refuge in God, for their sound indicates they have seen Satan. Picked up a heavy stone and threw it at the soldiers. Others soon joined him, though it was dark by then and no one could see anything. The wind moaned, the horses heaved, the donkeys brayed, people shrieked. At last, one of the ferrymen managed to light a candle. He lifted it up. The horses had somehow untethered themselves and ambled away, dragging their prisoner. The soldiers dropped the man they had been beating and ran after them. The travelers sat up, rubbing, rubbing their heads or limbs where the stones of fellow travelers had struck them. As for my father, he still lay where he had fallen, contemplating the scene with impotent fury. The ferryman told everyone to get back on the barge immediately before the Portuguese soldiers returned. The travelers carried my father aboard, seating him gingerly next to his belongings. With difficulty, my mother walked on. Hurry, she told the ferryman, the child is on its way. The anchor was hoisted and the barge glided on the river, now as dark as olive oil in a jar. But then my mother's pain had grown, by then my mother's pain had grown so intense that she settled herself on her knees and began to push. My father asked her whether she needed anything. I need to be home, she said. So it was that she pushed me out into the world on the barge that carried her from one bank to the other, my father bleeding by her side. 
When they arrived in Azamor, a porter helped my mother, my father, and me onto his cart and took us home, while our belongings followed behind on the donkey. As they walked through the gate of the Medina, my mother turned to my father and said, I want to name him Mustafa. My father did not reply. He had fainted. All three of us, father, mother, and newborn child, were carried into our new home. My uncle Abdullah went to fetch the doctor, while the neighbors on either side of the house came to help. The men lifted my father onto his bed, where he would be more comfortable. The women washed and dressed me, then handed me to my mother to nurse. The children moved our belongings out of the doorway and into the courtyard. The doctor was a Jew, a man by the name of Benhaim al-Gharnati whose reputation had extended throughout the city in just a few short years. Knowing of my father's resentment of refugees, however, no one told him that his doctor was originally from Granada. Benhaim wore the customary black and had a long beard, white save for a few strands of dark hair. Unwrapping the hike my mother had used to tie the wound, he cut through the jalaba and undershirt with scissors. The wound was very deep the sword having gone through all the way to the other side, and strips of skin were floating in the puddle of blood. The doctor cleaned the wound and dressed it, but warned that my father was showing signs of infection. This muscle, he said, pointing to the shoulder, is becoming rigid. Not a good sign. Not a good at all. It surprised neither of my uncles to hear this diagnosis. If there had been even a small chance of getting an infection, my father, they knew, would not miss it. In spite of the torrential rain, the doctor returned every day for a week to check on my father, the expression on his face getting grimmer each day. On the seventh day after I returned to Azamor, our house, our house filled with guests to celebrate my birth. The men gathered around my father, read verses from the Quran, and asked the Most High to bring his blessings upon me. And brought, The women gathered around my mother, painted her hands with henna, and brought her amulets to protect me against evil and injury. But the following morning, the doctor returned, this time to amputate my father's left arm. And so my mother spent the next few weeks attending to her menfolk, both of them helpless and wholly dependent on her. The first time my mother told me this, the story of my birth, I was only a boy of five, still prone to hide in the folds of her kaftan, reluctant to leave her side and venture out alone into the streets of Azamor. She said that I was born on a river, which could only mean that I was fearless then and that I should be brave now. I should run to the stall around the corner and buy her the lamp oil she needed, even though it was getting dark. But the second time she told me this story, it was many years later, when she had despaired of making me listen to reason, when she had lost hope that I would remain in Azamor. She said I had been destined for a life of travel, but she could just as easily have prophesied that having been born on the day my father stood up to Portuguese soldiers, I had been destined for a life of war, or that having endured a riot before my arrival, I had been destined for a life of survival, or that having been born to a crippled father, I had been destined to a life of loss. If only I could see her now, I would tell her that all of these destinies were mine in the end, and that God, in his bountiful mercy, had sent multiple signs, though in her desire to prepare herself and me for what was yet to come, she had noticed only two. Um, I feel like I read for a while this second portion, so I'm going to give you guys a break. <laughs> I did not expect this scene to take so long. And so um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes, Robin. Could you talk a little bit about the challenge of the research? and the challenge of the research? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I've begun reading it, and, and it's very sort of full of detail. Yeah. And so what, where did you go, other than the Chronicles, to, to find the, the world? 
Yeah, so when I had the idea of this novel, I had this very perfect vision of how it was going to go. And the way that it was going to go was I was going to do research for a year, and then I was going to lock myself up in my office, and I was going to write it from beginning to end, and la 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 la, and it doesn't work that way. So I did do the research, and then I wrote, and then I realized, okay, I need to know this, and then I had to go research, and then I would write some more, and I was like, wait a minute, I need to know this. And a lot of times when you do research, the historical research is easy enough. You're just reading a history book, but there are so many things that you have to go and look for. So for example, if I want to set a scene in Texas and the year is 1532, I have to make sure that every tree and every flower and every plant that I mention is native to the Americas and not, um, and not imported. And it seems simple, right? And then you have to go and look for a database of native plants and the, the Texas this. I mean, it's just crazy. And, that, and you don't know that you need it until you set out to write the, the scene that you needed that information. So the idea that I was going to somehow do research and then write the book, just it didn't work out that way. Um, so there, were, there was a lot to research, um, not just things like native plants, but, but just so much. Like, for example, in, um, I, I did my best in, in doing the research, for example, about indigenous tribes. But if you want to name a character a particular thing, and you do have to name them, because without names, it's impossible that they're going to have any kind of agency in the story. So they had to become characters. And the first thing is they had to have names. What am I going to name them? How are you going to name them? You know, so I had to go and do research about uh, tribes. And it's, you know, all these languages are extinct. Uh, but we do have one database of one woman who had lived to the 18th century and had left 20 or 30 words with a friar and somehow somebody had written that down and I managed to get a hold of that and like, you know, finding pieces of language from that era so that I could use it to find names for characters or to get a sense of what their languages sounded like. So it's endless. I mean, it's, it's, um, it was a lot... <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It was a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of research, and I had I known how much it would be, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have done it because I, where I started obviously was Cabeza de Vaca, and then I also read uh, Bernal Diaz's The Conquest of New Spain, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, and then I read um, people who had devoted their entire careers to researching Cabeza de Vaca's route and written books about them. So I read those. Um, I, th there were a couple of researchers who had become interested in Estebanico over the years. Now, one of the things that's interesting about him is whoever writes about him wants to claim him, right? So, I mean, I, one of the reasons I became interested in him is because he's Moroccan, I'm Moroccan, it just seemed like that that was what interested me in him. But uh, starting in about the 1930s, African-American historians had actually become interested in him because of the role he had played. And so they were writing about him and trying to find out who exactly he was. So there's, a, there's some research about him. It's just that we don't know anything with, with a high degree of accuracy. So anyway, yeah, so the research. And, and you know, you do get into research rapture, you know, like you, you start researching and I need to know that. And then pretty soon it becomes procrastination, <laughs> at which I am a master. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have sort of a question that builds off of that, which is how long did it take would you <laughs> <laughs> So, the, so I came across the story in November. I laugh because had I known, I wouldn't have written it. You know, I, that the idea, I was like, I need to write. Like, I hear these people who write, who have books out every three years. I need to get me some of that. I need to do the same thing. It didn't work out. Um, so I started working. The idea came in November 2009. 
and uh, I turned in the final revision in, in November, December of, of 2013, and then it goes into production. So, well, it felt long. Believe me, it felt long. <laughs> it felt long. But I should I should mention that I was very fortunate in in during the writing of this book that I did get to go on a writing residency in Marfa, Texas, and I also went on another residency in. Um, Washington. So, you know, there's compressed times where I was able to do nothing um, but write. Yes? When you're writing a scene... Guys, this is my student. <laughs> Former student! He graduated now. He's on to bigger and better things, but it's just so nice to see him. Fresh face. <laughs> when you're writing a scene, and you, so you, you're, you're, in, you're in Marfa and you're writing your scene, and you get to the point where you're like, oh, I don't know what trees go here. Do you like stop and pull up databases, or do you, are you just like, or do you do they continue through like? Well, in Marfa, there's internet connections. So wherever there's an internet connection, there's ability to do research, and I can connect to the UC uh, library through uh, remotely. So, so that's that. But if if I'm writing anywhere else, you know, it's like. You know, there's this tree TKTK, this tree XXX, this bird XXX, and then later you go back and you do the research and and you fill in the holes. Uh, but if I if I want to procrastinate, then yes, I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll go and spend two hours researching. And sometimes even when you find the tree, you're like, hmm, I don't like the color of that tree. What else can I put there? And then you start, <laughs> and then two hours go by and you're like, <gasps> so yeah, so that's that's research rapture. <laughs> yes, sir. Gender. Yes. 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 Well, um, I mean, this whole story is a story of transformation and reinvention and what you need to do in order to survive. And really, it illuminates the sense that, like, character is something that is often based on, like, time and place and circumstance, um, and that it can mold and change depending on these variables if they change. It's true that Cabeza de Vaca uh, acted as a traitor, and it's true that many women did have that role, but also many men. So. So yeah, I would say that, that that probably did happen. They had to do a number of tasks that were considered domestic tasks and specifically women's tasks. So for example, at one point they had to gather wood and carry the wood, sometimes long distances. They had to set up the morning fire. They had to clean uh, the skins of animals that were caught by the hunters. Uh, so they had to do a lot of domestic tasks. But if you get my book, you will learn a lot about what other things they did in order to uh, in order to survive. <laughs> yes, Paul. You said New Spain. What, what, tell me about New Spain. New Spain. So um, it's interesting because uh, this Narvaez expedition is named after a guy named Panfilo de Narvaez and. Uh, other than leading this completely disastrous expedition, his other claim to fame is that he was supposed to be the guy that did what Cortes did. 
he was sent by the governor of Cuba in hot pursuit of Cortez because Cortez had left because he didn't get the proper uh, authorizations to go and land and claim the, the, the empire of the Aztecs. And this guy was sent after him to try and catch him, except that Cortez defeated him and not only defeated him, but took out his eye. That's why he wears a patch. So, um, but anyway, um, it was called New Spain because that was that whole area they would call it New Spain. So the conquest of New Spain by Bernal Diaz is is the book I highly highly recommend it. And it's sometimes it's very dull. So it'll go like oh and we arrived in this town and we waited and then we captured you know this town and then we waited and then we went to this other town and we waited and then all of a sudden you hear oh and some of us were hurt and so we just cut off uh, an Indian's fat and we used it to to as salve for our wounds. And you're like wait what what just happened? It literally, it's like that. It's just, it's the most brutal book. And yet at the same time, it can, there are moments of this routine. I guess conquest is a matter of, they're bored in between killing all these people. They get, they find time to be bored, I guess. So. But it is, it's, it's a very illuminating book and highly instructive, Conquest of New Spain. I will ask the last question. Ah, they were just getting warmed up, but yes. <laughs> um, did you learn anything? about the character or yourself in the process? I did. I learned when I started writing this book, I, I did it because I was interested in this guy and I wanted to know more about him and the best way was you know, I, I wanted to read the story and nobody had written it so I decided to write it. But um, what I really learned is that we really don't change like as a species. Like everything that happened in the book is happening right now, down to the justification for, you'll see if you read the book, <laughs> even down to the legal justifications for things, that was also done back then and everything is, is documented. So to me that's what's fascinating is that there is something completely obdurate about human nature and that, that we can't seem to, um, to overcome it. So it's a very modern book is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for, so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.